1: that the library is the last place you can go in America that you don't have to spend money, besides the church. Government-run, last place you can go (laughs) that you don't have to spend money. Isn't that a powerful thing? That is a communal gathering place. But as I was reading this summer, I read a book called Biting the Hand, and it's about growing up Asian in black and white America. I read an article, interview in NPR, and I was really excited to read it. It's rather spicy, so... Tread at your own risk. Um, But she talks about growing up in LA and in this black-white binary of much of conversations in America and what it's like to just have this Asian experience, to feel adjacent to whiteness, but still feel um, like you're not part of the story. And there was a really gripping sentence right at the beginning that she had in chapter one, and it just really hit me between the eyes, and she says, all I remember about my childhood is hating myself. And I was so struck by this idea, as somebody who's Indian, I grew up um, about two hours south of here, in a very rural area. Uh, didn't meet another Indian until I was an adult. Um, didn't meet another person of color until I was in middle school. Uh, and I just remember absolutely detesting myself because of the color of my skin for no other reason but of how I looked. And. As she talked about healing from that and growing in that, and I realized as she's talking about this from a very you know, worldly perspective, academic perspective, I looked at it as I wish I wouldn't have squelched the image of God in me. I wish I wouldn't have squelched the goodness that God was doing in and through me because I couldn't see myself, I couldn't grasp the idea that I was created in his image. And so much of my, uh, my adolescence was discovering who God was and, and my 20s of just getting to the point where I like myself, getting to the point where I like myself. And so when we talk this morning through Galatians 4, you're going to find this invitation to accept your place as an image bearer. Now, I'm raising two little boys. Uh, one is Ugandan. One is half Indian, half white. And I'm leaving it all on the court for them because I'm like, man, if you leave my house, I desperately want you to follow Jesus. But out of everything, I need you to know that you bear the image of God, of the divine. The creator of the cosmos quite literally handcrafted you in your mother's womb. Because I think if we can grasp that, everything changes. So let's pray before we get started. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you're so faithful. We sung about you, how you're near, how you're in the shadows, how you're parting the oceans. It's all true. It's all true. You are who you said. You are. You show up. You're working in the shadows. You're working out in front and behind and to the side. We trust you. Would you be so present this morning? Would you make your way and your revelation so crystal clear that we could all find ourselves in this story? To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen, amen. Okay, word on the street is you've been in Galatians 4. And I am going to pick back up right in that. Oh, look at there. Some are reading Galatians. Uh, pick right back up in Galatians 4. And we're going to dive into one piece of this and kind of pull on a thread and kind of find out what does it mean to be this image bearer in a time of confusion. So little little setup here. Uh, in Galatians 4, Paul is teaching this important lesson to the Galatian Christians, because according to Paul, it would be foolish for them to seek uh, the law of Moses. The, he's like, don't go Old Testament on me. You know, He's like, this is not what I'm asking you to do, to live as a new creation, uh, because they wanted to follow the law of Moses in hopes of being acceptable to God. They so feared not being seen and known and accepted by God. So he uses so many examples to prove his point in this chapter, but what happens is the Galatians have begun to see him, Paul, and his message of God's grace as untrustworthy because of the false teachers of his time. These false teachers were smooth operators, so charming. Charisma over content, over character, over scripture, and over context. And so they were wooed by these false teachers that were glorifying themselves and saying that you had to do this, that, and the other. And so Paul is desperate to remind them of what's true, of what's already true before they discovered it. That's when we discover the image, finding out what's already true even before we show up on the scene. So yes, they only wanted to glorify themselves, these false teachers, but he compares them to little children. Uh, He uses the example of heirs, so many different examples in Galatians four, but he wants nothing more than to see Christ take shape in their life. And he says, uh, to paraphrase in Galatians four, from the message, it says this, my dear friends, what I would really like you to do is to try to put yourselves in my shoes to the same extent that I, when I was with you, put myself in yours. You were very sensitive and kind then. You did not come down on me personally. You were well aware that the reason I ended up preaching to you was that I was physically broken and so prevented from continuing my journey. I was forced to stop with you. That is how I came to preach to you. And don't you remember that even though taking in a sick guest was most troublesome for you, you chose to treat me as well as you would have treated an angel of God, as well as you would have treated Jesus himself if he had visited you What has happened to the satisfaction you felt at that time? There were some of you then who, if possible, would have given your very eyes to me. I feel like he could have used a lot of examples. Eyes didn't need to be one of them. That's okay. But that's how deeply you cared. And now I have suddenly become your enemy simply by telling you the truth. I can't even believe it. So he is reminding them Not only are we image bearers, but you bore witness to my pain and to my problem and to my situation, and I bore witness to yours. So that's the thread we're going to really pull on and we're going to explore this morning is this idea of our role as both image bearers and bearing witness to one another and the journey each other is on. Now, uh, I think it's interesting to note that uh, first we are participants in our becoming. We don't just hope for the best and believe that God's gonna take everything and we still live our own lives, right? We are participants in our becoming alongside the divine as we bear the image and as we bear with others. So that's kind of our anchor point here this morning when we think of this passage in Galatians 4. So first let's expand on bearing the image of God. Now. In ancient times, kings would erect temples and huge statues that were meant to be self-portraits of themselves, and this was to be the image of God to everyone who could see it. You didn't have to wonder what God looked like. You just had to look at what the 1% of the 1% of the 1% who's eating out of a golden spoon decided who God was. That's how we determined what the image of God was in the Old Testament. they would erect these and then and then God comes on the scene and says the image isn't what's created in this hierarchy by by the kings of that day it's not the kings of the day who bear my image when you're wondering what God looks like don't think of them in the hierarchy they've created the poverty they've created the inequality they've created no he says I've created you all in my image So he diffuses this power. It went from one person in one region to all of us. He completely flips it on his head in this upside down kingdom. And he says, all of you bear this image. All of you are tasked in architecting this human project toward renewal, toward goodness, and toward restoration. So now we all are tasked with caring for the earth and caring for one another and exploring what this means to bear the image of God because it isn't in those temples and it isn't in those statues. It's in us and we are all invited to participate, to grow, to connect and to rule. So we could agree that a distortion of this image would be what we saw that those kings created or when the image of God is co-opted for capitalistic or imperialistic gain. So if it's used for anything other than what God intended, which was equality and goodness and grace and holiness, any fractured view of that misses the mark, even by two, three, 4%. Pastor Rich Viotis, he talks about this, uh, excuse me, yes. He says, after shouts of Hosanna, Jesus enters the temple and clears out those who have used religion to exploit people. So they use that image of God, and god ways to exploit people. He then welcomes the blind and lame in the temple and heals them. It reminds us that Jesus has a furious and passionate love for those the world has little regard for. So what are we seeing here? This invitation to take the invisible to the visible. That is what bearing the image of God, the invitation is in. Galatians 4.19, again, paraphrased in the message, says, do you know how I feel right now? This is Paul talking to the Galatian church and will feel until Christ's life becomes visible in your life. He so desperately wanted to see evidence of God's activity in their life by the way they lived their lives. He wanted to see the invisible become visible. I love the idea that power, dignity, goodness, and grace, they were on the palette when God created us and painted us into existence. It was all part of the plan. So when we feel the opposite of that, that's not part of the plan this suffering, and this loss, and this heaviness, this is what we are healing from. A little side note, Viola Davis in her uh, memoir, Finding Me, this has really stuck with me, and forgive me if I've shared this with you, but she talks about, I think our purpose isn't individual, I think our purpose is to heal. Our purpose is to heal. That's our calling, that's our purpose, that's why we're here. So to be healed, to be reconciled with God, to be reconciled with this understanding of what the image is, I think is a powerful one. So to bear an image, it isn't to stay one way. It's to evolve into a fuller, more vibrant picture of who God is. Now we know in the account of creation, we're told in Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So we have it right there from the beginning of the book. Humankind was created to be a graphic, a 3D image of who God is. We always wonder, where's God in this situation? He's in you, Brohim, that's where he at. You know what I'm saying? Like, look in the mirror. That is where he wants to show up. When we look at the downtrodden and those who are struggling, and we're like, why isn't God showing up? You're like, he's in the one who's being harmed. This is the story. We can wonder up and down where God is, but we must look within because we were the ones who were created in the image. Now, let's break this into two parts. Uh, One scholar notes that the term imago Dei, image of God, refers most fundamentally to two things. First, God's own self-actualization through humankind. And second, God's care for humankind. To say that humans are in the image of God is to recognize the special qualities of human nature which allow God to be made manifest in humans. In other words, for humans to have the consciousness recognition of their being in the image of God means that they are the creature, I like that, through whom God's plans and purposes can be made known, and actualized. Now, everything was flipped on his head when Jesus comes on the scene because now we've got proof of what this could actually look like. We got someone turning tables, as I just shared. We've got somebody caring for the least of these. We've got somebody pushing themselves when they're tired and worn out to love and to be available. We see someone who's pursuing emotional capacity and labor to be available. We see someone who is honoring his mama. What is that? I tell my kids that all the time. We see somebody who, uh, we, see, we see this idea of like, oh, that's what you meant. That's what you meant. That's what the image of God can be. This selfless kind example not the way of the empire, not the way of hierarchy, not the way of racism or sexism or any of the caste system that just absolutely encapsulated what it was like to live in the first century. All of these things, you were ordered and defined in life not by being beloved, but by what you had or had not. I mean, we're talking about a time when women were considered as low as, women were property, really, you know, half of the earth, property. Everyone was ordered by what they hadn't had. And then he comes on the scene and says, you are all beloved, you are all equal. That is offensive to the people in power and liberating to those on the end of the line. To be equal. Because somebody had something to lose. Therefore, it was offensive. Deeply offensive to the powers of the day. That's why they killed him. Because love is really offensive to those who don't want it and to those who benefit off of hate. So as image bearers, what does that look like? How are we seeing the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control exhibited in our life? How are we seeing that play out? Because that's what human renewal, that's what image bearers looks like. It's not this, like, I'm going to go die on a hill. It's being an image bearer, a faithful image bearer who's in this place of God actualization can look like cleaning up Cheerios off the floor. It can look like, if you're a barista serving your coffee, it can look like not being a jerk at work. Their bar is not as high as we think, people. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, showing up for the people in your world. Showing up for yourself. Because how are you going to treat someone else like an image bearer if you don't see yourself as one? Okay? Uh, One of my favorite stories of this idea of seeing yourself as an image bearer and seeing beloved least of these as image bearers is Ruth Beckford Smith. Um, I have a manuscript due September 1, and she's one of my favorite stories that I'm featuring in this book. And So in January 1969 in Oakland, California at St. Augustine's Church, Ruth Beckford Smith was asked by her pastor if she would organize breakfast uh, for neighborhood kids who, you know, money was tight. They weren't getting fed before they head off to school. At the time, there was reduced lunch, but there was not free and reduced lunch, and there sure as heck wasn't free breakfast uh, nationwide at all. It was a very new program um, as social services was kind of finding their feet. So she does it. She gets other mamas from the neighborhood. They start knocking on doors of uh, other churches, the Elks Club, social groups, being like, you want to donate? I know you need to donate. Don't tell me you're going to say no to me, right? Because you know when mamas are going to get a job done, it's like, we are going to get this done. It's going to be the most organized thing ever. And it was. By the end of 1969, their chapter and chapters all over the nation fed 20,000 children. 20,000 children. And she wasn't getting paid for this, by the way. This was out of the love of her heart. Her and other mamas began this work. And uh, toward the end of that year, uh, the state of California said, you have fed more children than we have. You have taken care of more children, more image bearers than we have. Now, someone's gonna ruin a good thing, right? The head of the FBI at the time, Herbert Hoover, Said this is the greatest threat to American democracy, Ruth, and the other mamas, and feeding those babies. The FBI said it was the greatest threat to American democracy, so they feeding feeding children before school so they could not fail math, you know. Uh, so they called all of the vendors that they were using and said you can't you can't give to these women. You cannot you cannot donate this food to this women. Um, they called the schools and said that these women are poisoning your children. Uh, some lost their lives for what they were doing. And all of the sites got shut down except the one in Seattle, all of them. And so within two years, uh, Ruth and many other mamas like her went before Congress and said, if you're not gonna do it, we will. These babies deserve every good thing. The ordinary way of showing up with eggs and bacon and grits and oatmeal and nutritious hot meals, hot meals every morning led to the free breakfast that went into effect two years later nationwide. And it all started with Ruth. Um, When I was in my senior year of high school, I grew up in a very food insecure home. I discovered that I qualified for free breakfast. And I remember as somebody who really hid that she wasn't fed at home, I remember going up the first day I realized I qualified, which very equal parts so discouraged that I didn't know that I qualified until my senior year. Um, but was so pleased to be fed. And I walked up and I got a little orange juice and a bagel and cream cheese and I ate it. And it was one of the first days that I wasn't hungry by 10 a.m. And I can only, I just wish I would have known that a mama in 1969 made it her mission to love Image Bears in such a practical way to bring heaven to earth in such a practical way, to mend the earth and bring restoration and social renewal in such a way that honored her understanding of image bearers. It was so ordinary and so life-changing, so life-changing. When we understand our role as image bearers, we bring change that we couldn't even dream. Because if we really believed it's true, the way we would treat others, the way we would treat ourselves, the way we would treat others who have nothing to offer us because we're so quick to identify ourselves by our advantages and others by their disadvantages, everything would be different. This was the upside down kingdom he came to model for us. And Ruth got it. So as we bear the image we bear witness, and this is, again, what Paul was saying, he's like, don't remember? Don't you remember when I was hurting and vulnerable and you cared for me? Don't you remember? He's saying, you are so obsessed with the right doctrine that look at the embodied way the gospel takes place. This is not separate from spiritual and and physical and relational, it's all embodied, it's all enacted in your being, please see this. That is desperately what he's trying to prove to them that you know what's good, you know what's true. Vivek Murphy, Surgeon General uh, of the United States, he, a couple years during the pandemic, explained that loneliness was the greatest threat to the American landscape today. Loneliness. And so much in research and books have been written on loneliness, but loneliness to define for our time today is a lack of vulnerability. Where you find loneliness, you find someone who doesn't want to be honest and vulnerable with those around them. Because they fear they'll be judged. Because you know we all have our laundry list of reasons. Perhaps we had rejection in family of origin, so we fear taking that into our adult life. You know we all got our reasons. We all go and figure it out in therapy, right? But loneliness um, is deeply, deeply, deeply damaging because again, it's hard to see yourself accurately, and it's hard to walk alongside others accurately. And the invitation here that Paul is saying is, you are gonna understand the gospel not only as you understand and bear the image and have that self-actualization and that continue evolving in who God has made you to be, but also as you walk alongside others, that's how you will understand what the gospel is. You will find and see and taste and experience and smell the gospel as you walk with others, vulnerably, vulnerably. Uh, Many moons ago, um, and to bear witness, I want to add a little bit more context to that, is to show in word or deed that something is true or exists. To walk alongside. Uh, so many moons ago, I lived in Manchester, England. I had just gotten dumped by the man of my dreams, and I wasn't quite sure what I was gonna do, and my car broke, and my back hurt. I mean, it was a whole thing, guys. Um, and I'm like, a, I'm, although my personality, you might think I'd be like, ah, no, I'm like, don't let them see you sweat, you know? Um, but I remember at this church I attended, uh, where my ex was a pastor on staff, whatever, it's fine. Um, uh, it's fine, I was on staff too. Um, which is why I moved to England. You guys, the layers here. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) uh, there was this gal at church who just saw me. And I was like, you know, early 20s, and she just took me under her wing. And I remember she would make beautiful meals for me. She, in England, there's a little bit different things of like your tabs and taxes and like learning how that worked, desperately trying to figure out how that worked. And she walked me through that, um, helped me get my car fixed, paid for it, Um, had me over, I, I, really needed some chiropractic work, paid it, she paid that, and I, to this day, cannot remember her last name, so I can't look her up on Facebook to thank her. FYI, this is pre-Facebook, so this is not like you just knew people, you know what I'm saying? You can't just follow up like that, unless you know their last name, which again is vital to finding somebody on the internet. Um, Dawn, right? That could be anybody. Um, But she was, her kindness was so palpable and it was so jarring for me because I had received so little of that, I didn't even know what to do with her honesty and the way she would just sit with me and this is where the AC is, I'm gonna stay right here. I just found it. It's hot up here. but her kindness was so palpable and so true. And I, to this day, it shaped how I mentor, how I disciple others, because she would just sit with me. And I remember I was crying, you know, this guy's dumped me, I don't know what I'm gonna do, and I'm too embarrassed to move home because this is why I moved over there. And she just sat and listened, and again and again and again, and I'm sure I was on repeat, and she, she was just so kind. She had two teenage boys, um, she was a nurse. She had so many things that could have kept her busy. I was the last person on her list of people to care for. But she did not deny me her kindness. And she bore witness to my crap storm of a situation. My car, my back, my ex. You know, she was there. She was there. She was there. On Saturday mornings when I, you know, off work and just still new to the area, didn't really know anybody, she would be like, just come, come spend the day at my house and we'll bake or we'll do this, that, and the other. We'll take a walk. And I just... It was so beautiful. When you have such acute kindness shown to you, it messes with you. You don't forget that. You don't for- You can think right now of someone who was so ridiculously kind to you, it almost made you feel awkward. Like you're like, ah, why do I feel like a sense of shame of just your kind, like, what do I do with this? Where do I put this? This is what we're asked to. This is the invitation to bear witness, to bear the image of God and bear witness to others situation. Uh, When we do this, we are a voluntary witness to God's love. I think a perfect example of this is the woman at the well. Jesus fully sees her. What is the first thing she says when she goes back to her town? She says, let me tell you someone who knew my whole story. She felt seen. He bore witness to her story, even though he already knew the deeds, right? But still, he was so kind and tender and gentle with her story, and he stood in the gap to share a better way. There had to be some mass vulnerability and honesty there to accomplish that. And it was what struck her the most. The goodness, the never-ending well, all good things that he shared, but what struck her the most was for her to be seen and known, just as she was, how imperfectly she was, Jesus says in John 5:30, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And here it is: money shot. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Others need to see and know. Others need to walk along. That's how you're going to know this is true. John 5, 36, just a few verses later. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing bear witness about me. They tell you what's true. He's saying, unless you get close and see it and can hold the testimony for yourself, no one's going to believe this. It's not true. Isn't that wild? Someone's got to get close and see You know, bearing witness, uh, we see it scripturally, but we often see it in a courtroom. Who is gonna be a witness on the stand? Who is gonna tell the truth about what's happened? And who's gonna speak the truth back to you of what's happened in your life? I love this acknowledgement that it's not only what you say, but how you live, because we live in an age that quite frankly, you can project one way on the interwebs and one way in person. And the flip side, there's a lot of people I know in real life and like, and on the internet, I'm like, you are trash. Like, why do you talk like that? Don't talk like that on the internet. The things we see, we can project so differently, but the invitation is to be vulnerable, to be fully known and fully seen, that others could tell a testimony, that others can bear witness to the goodness of God. We bear witness with our words and our actions. So the restoration of God's image in us is not only for the benefit of the individual, but for the world. The restoration of God's image in you is not only for you. It's not only for you to be in a place where you're right with him. It's for the benefit of the world. The image of God and the people of God, both individually and collectively, is a sign and a witness to the world of the Lord's great love for us. I wanna give you an example Um, from research, research, it's called the silence of memory. Now, this silence of memory is this academic term when someone has no one to remember their story or experience. It's like a sense of incompleteness and injustice, sense of something left undone, of justice work left incomplete. Going through it on your own. I think when we think of the hardest times of our lives, it's when we felt alone. It doesn't? Yes, it was hard. There was something awful happening. But it was when we felt alone and it was awful. It's one thing to be alone. It's another thing to be alone and feel awful. Yeah. Right? But if you have somebody walking with you, if you have someone bearing witness to your story, it hits a little differently. You can be a little lighter. They remind you of what's true in the middle of it. I saw... Um, Uh, A tweet the other day, a thread, a tweet, who knows. But it said, so many of life's problems could be solved with a dinner party with your closest people. (laughs) So much of the ease of our pain could be solved with that. And I, I think of this, uh, I know I'm jumping around here um, with women in scripture, but not only the woman in the well, but if we look in the Old Testament and we look at Ruth and Naomi, I think of Naomi, and she has lost her husband and she has lost her sons, and her friends say to her, You're, cause she says, call me, call me Mara, I'm bitter. Call me Mara, right? She's feeling alone. But her friends stand in the gap vulnerably and they say, You don't have a son and you don't have a husband, but you have a daughter in law. Isn't that as good as many sons? They remind her of what's true. And then finally, when, her, when Ruth does bear a child with Boaz, uh, her friends say, didn't we tell you? Look for, the, look for the friends in the story. I feel like they're the unsung heroes of that story. Look for Naomi's friends and say, didn't we tell you that God was good to you? Didn't we say we weren't going to call you, Mara, even though you all want us to call you that? Being dramatic that you couldn't remember how good God was to you? Come on. Come on. They bore witness every step of the way to her story. They were in it with her through the hardest times losing her husband. Can't imagine what it's like to bury your child or two in her case. When we are willing to vulnerably walk with those other people, and I want you to think about that, who is sitting at the bar stools of your heart? You know, the four or five spots that you're bearing witness and they're bearing witness to you. How often are you with them? How often are you checking in with them? How often are you reminding yourselves and each other that God is good and he's present? Because you are going to find out the goodness of God, the restoration of God, so often through the people who love you and who are walking with you. But if, if there's a lack of vulnerability, we miss out. We quite literally miss out on the, on the Imago Dei, on the presence of God incarnate, alive inside those around us, when we fail to be vulnerable. I love, how, I love how Paul said this. He's like, don't you remember? Come on, you bore witness to me. You saw me in my time of need and you cared for me. You wanted to give me your eyes. <laughs> That's beautiful. Life is going to ebb and flow. Things are going to change. It's going to come at us fast. And, and we know traumatic events mark the human existence. Suffering binds us all together. So how beautiful to go about bearing the image and bearing witness with one another. Mm. Renee Brown says, show up for collective moments of joy and pain so we can actually bear witness to inextricable human connection. Women and men with the strongest true belonging practices maintain their belief in inextricable connection by engaging in moments of joy and pain. The Catholic writer Joseph Bottom has observed, we live in an anxious age and bearing witness, sharing what we know and have with one another could not only be a gift to another, but allow us to be most fully ourselves." And I want to leave you with this. Uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright shares, we need Christian people to work as healers, as healing judges and prison staff, as healing teachers and administrators, as healing shopkeepers and bankers, as healing musicians and artists, as healing writers and scientists, as healing diplomats and politicians. We need people who will hold on to Christ firmly with one hand and reach out with the other with wit and skill and cheerfulness, with compassion and sorrow and tenderness to the places where our world is in pain. We need people who will use all their God-given skills to analyze where things have gone wrong, to come to the place of pain, and to hold over the wound the only medicine which will really heal, which is the love of Christ made incarnate once more. Your smile on your mind, your tears in mind, your patient analysis in mind, your frustration in mind, your joy and mine. God's image emerges in us through us and through another as we commit to him, as we grip onto him, as we continue to evolve into all God has created us to be and loving others so vulnerably. Again, that can look like breakfast to kids down the street. That can look like showing up for the people in your world. That can look so simple. It's using whatever is in your hand to be faithful, to the ordinary journey that God has called you on. Let's pray, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for every brother and sister in the room. Thank you that you see us again, your glory and holiness and righteousness and truth. That righteousness, right relationship with you and others was on the palette when you painted us into existence. We are good, you call us good, you call us to yourselves. If we're ever wondering what you look like, we can look into the eyes of each other. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for joining us at the K. Church Podcast. Hey, we would actually love to see you in person and we meet at 945 and 1130 every Sunday in Bellevue. If you're interested, you can just go to www.kalos.church. All the information you need is there, and we hope to see you there. Thanks again for joining us at the Kalos Church Podcast.